Part two of Book four of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, Volume five by Francois Rene de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Teixeira de Matos. Book four, Part two. Prague, twenty eighth and twenty ninth May, eighteen thirty three. On Monday, the 28th of May, as the history lesson at which I was to have been present at 11 o'clock did not take place, I found myself free to go through, or rather to revisit the town, which I had already seen and seen again in coming and going. I do not know why I had imagined that Prague was nestled in a gap of mountains, that threw their black shadow over a huddled kettleful of houses. Prague is a bright city, in which twenty-five or thirty graceful towers and steeples rise up to the sky. Its architecture reminds one of a town of the Renaissance. The long sway of the emperors over the Cisalpine countries filled Germany with artists from those countries. The Austrian villages are villages of Lombardy, Tuscany, or the Venetian mainland. One would think oneself under the roof of an Italian peasant if, in the farmhouses with their great bare rooms, a stove did not take the place of the sun. The view enjoyed from the windows of the castle is agreeable. On one side you see the orchards of a cool valley with green slopes enclosed by the denticulated walls of the town, which run down to the Moldau, almost as the walls of Rome run from the Vatican down to the Tiber. On the other side you perceive the city, cut in two by the river, which is beautified by an island set upstream, and embraces another island downstream, after leaving the northern suburb. The Moldau flows into the Elbe. A boat might have taken me on board at the Bridge of Prague and landed me at the Pont Royal in Paris. I am not the work of the ages and kings. I have neither the weight nor the duration of the obelisk which the Nile is now sending to the Seine. The girdle of the Vestal of the Tiber would be strong enough to tow my galley. The Moldau Bridge, which was first built in wood in 795 by Monata, has been rebuilt at different times in stone. While I was taking the measure of this bridge, Charles X was walking on the pavement. He carried an umbrella. His son accompanied him like a page cicerone. I had said in the Conservateur that men would go to the window to see the monarchy pass. I saw it pass on the bridge of Prague. In the constructions of which Franschin is composed, one sees historic halls, Museums hung with the restored portraits and the furbished arms of the dukes and kings of Bohemia. Not far from the shapeless masses, there stands detached against the sky, a pretty building decked with one of the graceful porticos of the Cinquecento. This architecture has the drawback of being out of harmony with the climate. I was always preoccupied with the thought of the cold which they must feel at night. If at least one could, during the Bohemian winter, put those Italian palaces in the hothouse with the palm trees... Prague, often besieged, taken and retaken, is known to us, in a military respect, by the battle called after it, and by the retreat, in which Vauvenarg took part. The bulwarks of the town are demolished. The moat of the castle, on the side of the high plain, forms a deep and narrow groove, now planted with poplars. At the time of the Thirty Years' War, this moat was filled with water. The Protestants, having penetrated into the castle, on the 23rd of May, 1618, threw two Catholic lords, together with the Secretary of State, out of window. The three divers saved their lives. 
the secretary like a well-bred man begged a thousand pardons of one of the lords for his rudeness in falling on his head in this present month of may eighteen thirty three we are no longer so polite i am not sure what i should say in a similar case although i have been a secretary of state myself tycho brahe died in prague would you for all his knowledge have a false nose in wax or silver as he did tycho consoled himself in bohemia like charles x by contemplating the heavens the astronomer admired the work the king adores the workman the star which appeared in fifteen seventy two and died out in fifteen seventy four and which passed successively from dazzling white to the red yellow of mars and the leaden white of saturn presented to tycho's observations the spectacle of the conflagration of a world what is the revolution whose breath blew the brother of louis says to the tomb of the danish newton beside the destruction of a globe accomplished in less than two years general moreau came to prague to concert with the emperor of russia a restoration which he moreau did not live to see if prague were by the seaside nothing would be more charming and shakespeare striking bohemia with his wand turns it into a shipping country thou art perfect then says antigonus to a mariner in the winter's tale thou art perfect then our ship hath touched upon the deserts of bohemia antigonus lands charged to abandon a little girl to whom he addresses these words blossom speed thee well the storm begins thou art like to have a lullaby too rough does not shakespeare seem to have told in advance the story of the princess louise that young blossom that new perdita transported to the deserts of bohemia prague twenty eighth and twenty ninth may eighteen thirty three confusion blood catastrophes composed the history of bohemia her dukes and kings in the midst of civil wars and foreign wars fight with their subjects or come to loggerheads with the dukes and kings of silesia saxony poland moravia hungary austria and bavaria during the reign of wenceslas the sixth who spitted his cook for roasting a hare badly arose john huss who having studied at oxford brought back the doctrine of wycliffe the protestants who were looking for ancestors everywhere without being able to find any report that from the top of his funeral pile john sang and prophesied the coming of luther the world filled with acidity says bossuet gave birth to luther and calvin who canton christendom from the christian and pagan struggles the precocious heresies of bohemia the importation of foreign interests and foreign manners resulted a state of confusion favourable to lying bohemia passed as the native land of the sorcerers some old poems discovered in eighteen seventeen by m hanker the librarian of the prague museum in the archives of the church at koniginhof have become famous a young man whom i have pleasure in naming the son of an illustrious scholar m ampere has made known the spirit of those lays Tchelikovsky has spread popular songs in the slav idiom the poles think the bohemian dialect effeminate it is the quarrel of the doric and ionic the lower breton of van treats the lower breton of treguier as a barbarian slav as well as magyar lends itself to the translation of all languages my poor atala has been rigged out in a robe of hungarian point lace she also wears an armenian dolman and an arab veil there is another literature that has flourished in bohemia the modern latin literature the prince of this literature boislas hasenstein baron lobkowitz born in fourteen sixty two 
took ship in 1490 in Venice, and visited Greece, Syria, Arabia, and Egypt. Lobkowitz preceded me in those celebrated places by 316 years, and, like Lord Byron, sang his pilgrimage. With what a difference in mind, heart, thoughts, manners, have we, at an interval of over three centuries, meditated on the same ruins, and under the same sun, Lobkowitz the Bohemian, Byron the Englishman, and I the child of France. At the time of Lobkowitz's voyage, wonderful monuments, since overthrown, were standing. It must have been an astonishing spectacle, that of barbarism in all its strength, holding civilization on the ground under its feet, the janissaries of Mohammed II drunk with opium, victories in women, scimitar in hand, their foreheads girt with the blood-stained turban drawn up in line for the assault on the rubbish of Egypt and Greece. And I have seen the same barbarism among the same ruins, struggling under the feet of civilization. As I surveyed the town and suburbs of Prague, the things which I have just told came to apply themselves on my memory, like transfers on a canvas. But in whatever corner I happened to be, I saw Hradshin and the King of France leaning on the windows of that castle, like a ghost overtowering all those shades. Prague, 29th May, 1833 Having finished my review of Prague, I went on the 29th of May to dine at the castle at six o'clock. The King was in high spirits. When we left the table, sitting down on the sofa in the drawing-room, he said, Chateaubriand, do you know that the National, which arrived this morning, declares that I had the right to issue my ordinances? Sire, I replied, your majesty is making innuendos against me. The king, undecided, hesitated, then, taking his resolution, I have something on my mind. You dealt me devilish hard measure in the first part of your speech in the House of Peers. And at once the king, without giving me the time to answer, cried, Oh, the end, the end, the empty grave at Saint-Denis. That was admirable, that was very fine, very fine. Do not let us talk of it any more. I did not want to keep that. It's done with, it's done with. And he excused himself for venturing to risk those few words. I kissed the royal hand with pious respect. Let me tell you, Charles X resumed, perhaps I was wrong not to defend myself at Rambouillet. I still had great resources, but I did not want blood to flow for me. I retired. I did not combat this noble excuse, I replied. Sire, Bonaparte retired twice like your majesty, in order not to prolong the ills of France. I thus put the weakness of my old king under the shelter of Napoleon's glory. The children arrived and we went up to them. The king spoke of Mademoiselle's age. What, you little doll, he exclaimed, are you fourteen already? Oh, when I'm fifteen, said Mademoiselle. Well, what will you do then? Mademoiselle stopped short. Charles X was telling something. I don't remember that, said the Duke de Bordeaux. I should think not, said the king. It happened on the very day when you were born. Oh, replied Henry, so it's very long ago. Mademoiselle, leaning her head a little on one shoulder, lifting her face towards her brother while casting a glance aslant at me, said, with an ironical little look, Is it so very long, then, since you were born? The children retired. I took leave of the orphan. I was to start during the night. I said good-bye to him in French, English, and German. How many languages will Henry learn in which to tell his wandering miseries, to ask for bread and a shelter from the stranger? When the rubber began, I took his majesty's orders. 
"'You will see Madame la Dauphine at Carlsbad,' said Charles X. "'A good journey, my dear Chateaubriand. "'We shall read about you in the papers.' "'I went from door to door to pay my last respects "'to the inhabitants of the castle. "'I saw the young princess again at Madame de Gontaut's. "'She gave me a letter for her mother, "'at the foot of which were a few lines from Henry. "'I was to have left at five o'clock on the morning of the thirtieth. "'Count Chotek had had the goodness to order horses along the road.' A jobbing transaction detained me till noon. I was the bearer of a letter of credit for two thousand francs payable in Prague. I had called upon a fat little monkey of a Jew, who uttered cries of admiration when he saw me. He summoned his wife to his aid. She ran, or rather rolled up to my feet. She sat down opposite me, quite short, fat and black, with two arms like fins, staring at me with her round eyes. If the Messiah had come in by the window, this Rachel would not have appeared more delighted. I thought myself threatened with an alleluia. The broker offered me his fortune, letters of credit for the whole extent of the Israelitish dispersion. He added that he would send me my two thousand francs to my hotel. The money was not paid on the evening of the twenty-ninth. On the thirtieth, in the morning, when the horses were already put to, came a clerk with a parcel of bills, paper of different sources, which loses more or less on change and which is not current outside the Austrian states. My account was made out on a bill which said, in discharge, good money. I was astounded. What good is this to me? I asked the clerk. How am I to pay the posting and my hotel bills with this paper? The clerk ran off in search of explanations. Another clerk came and made me endless calculations. I sent back the second clerk. A third brought me cash in the form of Brabant crowns. I set out thenceforth on my guard against the affection with which I might inspire the daughters of Jerusalem. My calash was surrounded under the gateway by the people of the hotel, among whom squeezed a pretty Saxon servant-girl, who used to run off to a piano every time she could snatch a moment between two rings at the bell. Just ask Leonard of Limousin, or Fanchon of Picardy, to sing or play Tanti Papiti to you on the piano, or Moses' Prayer. Prague, and on the road, 29th and 30th May, 1833. I had come to Prague with the greatest apprehension. I had said to myself, to ruin us, it is often enough for God to place our own destinies in our hands. God works miracles in men's favour, but he leaves the conduct of these to them, but for which it would be he that would govern in person. Now men make the fruits of those miracles abortive. Crime is not always punished in this world, mistakes always. Crime is part of the infinite and general nature of men. Heaven alone knows the depth of it and sometimes reserves its punishment to itself. The mistakes of a limited and accidental nature come within the scope of the narrow justice of the earth. That is why it would be possible for the last mistakes of the monarchy to be rigorously punished by men. I had said to myself also, Royal families have been seen to fall into irreparable errors by becoming infatuated with a false idea of their own nature. At one time they look upon themselves as divine and exceptional families, at another as mortal and private families. They set themselves above the common law, or within that law, as the case may require. When they violate political constitutions, they cry that they have the right to do so, that they are the fount of the law, that they cannot be judged by ordinary rules. When they want to make a domestic mistake, to give a dangerous education, for instance, to the heir to the throne, they reply to the protest made, a private person can act towards his children as he pleases, and we cannot. Well, no, you cannot. You are neither a divine family nor a private family. You are a public family. 
you belong to society. The mistakes made by royalty do not affect royalty alone. They are detrimental to the whole nation. A king trips and goes away. But does a nation go away? Does it suffer no hurt? Are not those victims of their honour who have remained attached to the absent royalty interrupted in their careers, persecuted in the persons of their kin, trammelled in their liberty, threatened in their lives? Once more, the royalty is not a private possession. It is a public property, held in joint tenancy, and third parties are involved in the fortune of the throne. I feared that, in the confusion inseparable from misfortune, the royalty had not perceived these truths, and had done nothing to come back to them at the expedient time. On the other hand, while recognising the immense advantages of the Salic law, I did not conceal from myself the fact that the duration of a house has some serious drawbacks for both nations and kings. For the nations, because it blends their destiny too closely with that of the kings. For the kings, because permanent power intoxicates them. They lose earthly notions. All that is not a part of their altars, prostrate prayers, humble vows, profound abasement, is impiousness. Misfortune teaches them nothing. Adversity is but a coarse plebeian, who fails to show them respect, and catastrophes are for them but so many displays of insolence. I had fortunately deceived myself. I did not find Charles X in those high errors which take their rise at the pinnacle of society. I found him only in the common illusions of an unexpected accident, which are more easily explained. Everything serves to console the self-esteem of the brother of Louis the Eighteenth. He sees the political world falling into decay, and with some justice he attributes this decay to his epoch, not to himself. Did not Louis XVI perish? Did not the Republic fall? Was not Bonaparte compelled twice to forsake the scene of his glory, and did he not go to die a captive on a rock? Are not the thrones of Europe threatened? What, then, could he, Charles X, do more than those overthrown powers? He wanted to defend himself against his enemies. He was warned of the danger by his police, and by public symptoms. He took the initiative. He attacked so as not to be attacked. Did not the heroes of the three riots admit that they were conspiring, that they had been playing a part for fifteen years? Well, then, Charles thought that it was his duty to make an effort. He tried to save the French legitimacy, and with it, the European legitimacy. He gave battle and lost. He sacrificed himself to save the monarchies. That is all. Napoleon had his Waterloo, Charles X, his days of July. This is the light in which things present themselves to the unfortunate monarch. He remains immutable, leaning upon events which wedge in and fasten down his mind. By dint of his immovability he achieves a certain greatness. A man of imagination, he listens to you. He does not get angry with your ideas. He appears to enter into them and does not enter into them at all. There are certain general axioms which a man puts in front of himself like gabions. Taking up his position behind that shelter, he takes shots from there at intellects which march ahead. The mistake of many is to persuade themselves, according to events repeated in history, that mankind is always in its primitive place. They confound passions and ideas. The first are the same in every century, the second change in successive ages. If the material effects of certain actions are alike at different periods, the causes which have produced them vary. Charles X looks upon himself as a principle, and in fact, there are men who, by dint of living with fixed ideas, 
alike from generation to generation, are no longer more than so many monuments. Certain individuals, through the lapse of time and their own preponderance, become things transformed into persons. Those individuals perish when those things come to perish. Brutus and Cato were the Roman Republic incarnate. They could not survive it, any more than the heart can beat when the blood ceases to flow. In former days I drew this portrait of Charles X. You have seen him for ten years, that loyal subject, that respectful brother, that tender father, so greatly afflicted in one of his sons, so greatly consoled by the other. You know him, this Bourbon, who was the first to come after our misfortunes, a worthy herald of old France, to throw himself between you and Europe, with a branch of lilies in his hand. Your eyes are fixed with love and gladness on this prince who, in the fullness of age, has preserved the charm and the noble elegance of youth, and who now, adorned with the diadem, is still but one Frenchman the more in the midst of you. You repeat with emotion so many happy phrases escape from this new monarch, who derives from the loyalty of his heart the grace of speaking well. Where is that one among us who would not trust him with his life, his fortune, his honour? That man, whom we would all wish to have as our friend, we have to-day as our king. Ah, let us try to make him forget the sacrifices of his life. May the crown lie light upon the whitened head of that Christian knight, pious as Louis the Twelfth, courteous as Francis I, frank as Henry the Fourth. May he be happy with all the happiness which he has lacked during so many long years. May the throne on which so many monarchs have encountered storms be to him a place of rest. Elsewhere I have again celebrated the same prince. The model has only grown older, but one recognises it in the youthful touches of the portrait. Age withers us by taking from us a certain truth of poetry which gives colour and bloom to our faces, and yet one loves, in spite of oneself, the face which has faded at the same time as our own features. I have sung hymns to the house of Henry the Fourth. I would begin them again with all my heart, while combating anew the mistakes of the legitimacy, and bringing down upon myself anew its disgraces, if it were destined to rise again. The reason of this is that the constitutional legitimate royalty has always appeared to me the gentlest and safest road to entire liberty. I believed, and I should still believe that I was playing the part of a good citizen, even when exaggerating the advantages of that royalty, in order to give it, if so much should depend on me, the duration necessary for the accomplishment of the gradual transformation of society and manners. I am doing a service to the memory of Charles X by opposing the pure and simple truth to what will be said of him in the future. The hostility of parties will represent him as a man faithless to his oaths and the violator of the public liberties. He is nothing of the sort. He acted in good faith in attacking the Charter. He did not, nor did he need to think himself forsworn. He had the firm intention of restoring the Charter after he had saved it, in his own way and as he understood it. Charles X is what I have described him to be, mild, although subject to anger, kind and affectionate to his intimates, lovable, easy-going, free from malice, having all the knightly qualities, devotion, nobleness, and elegant courtesy mixed, however, with weakness, which does not exclude passive courage and the glory of a fine death, incapable of carrying out to the end a good or bad resolution, built up of the prejudices of his century and his rank, in ordinary times a proper king, 
in extraordinary times a man of perdition not of misfortune as for the duc de bordeaux they would like at fraction to make of him a king ever on horseback ever flourishing his sword it is necessary no doubt that he should be brave but it is a mistake to imagine that in these times the right of conquest will be recognized that it would be enough to be henry the fourth to reascend the throne without courage one cannot reign but one no longer reigns with courage alone bonaparte has killed the authority of victory an extraordinary part might be conceived by henry v i will suppose that at the age of twenty he feels his position and says to himself i can no longer remain inactive i have the duties of my blood to fulfil towards the past but am i then obliged to trouble france because of myself alone must i weigh upon centuries yet to come with all the weight of the centuries that are done with let us solve the question let us inspire with regrets those who unjustly outlawed me in my childhood let us show them what i could be it but depends on me to devote myself to my country by consecrating anew whatever be the issue of the contest the principle of the hereditary monarchies then the son of st louis would land in france with a double idea of glory and sacrifice he would descend upon it with the firm resolve to remain there with a crown upon his head or a bullet in his heart in the latter case his inheritance would go to philip the triumphant life or the sublime death of henry v would restore the legitimacy stripped only of that which the century no longer understands and which no longer suits the times for the rest supposing the sacrifice of my young prince made he would not have made it for me after the death of henry v without children i should never recognize a monarch in france i have abandoned myself to these dreams but what i suppose in relation to the resolution to be taken by henry is impossible by arguing in this wise i place myself in thought in an order of things above us an order which would be natural at a time of elevation and magnanimity but which would to-day look like the exaltation of romance it is as though i were to speak at the present time in favour of going back to the crusades whereas we have become commonplace in the sad reality of a deteriorated human nature such is the disposition of men's souls that henry v would encounter invincible obstacles in the apathy of france within and in the royalties without he will therefore have to submit to consent to await events unless indeed he decided on a part which men would not fail to brand as that of an adventurer he will have to enter into the sequence of ordinary facts and see the difficulties which surround him without however allowing them to overwhelm him the bourbons held good after the empire because they were succeeding an arbitrary government can one see henry transported from prague to the louvre after men have grown used to the most complete liberty the french nation does not at bottom love that liberty but it adores equality it admits absolutism only for and through itself and its vanity commands it to obey only what it imposes upon itself the charter made a vain attempt to cause two nations which had become foreign to one another to live under the same law ancient france and modern france how would you make the two frances understand one another now that prejudices have increased you would never appease men's minds by placing incontestable truths under their eyes to listen to passion or ignorance the bourbons are the authors of all our misfortunes 
to reinstate the elder branch would mean to restore the domination of the castles the bourbons are the abettors and accomplices of those oppressive treaties of which with good reason i never cease to complain and yet nothing could be more absurd than all those accusations in which both dates are forgotten and facts grossly distorted the restoration exercised no influence in diplomatic acts except at the time of the first invasion it is admitted that men did not want that restoration because they were treating with bonaparte at chatillon and that had he pleased he could have remained emperor of the french when his genius proved obstinate for want of anything better they took the bourbons who were on the spot monsieur as lieutenant-general of the kingdom then took a certain part in the transactions of the day we have seen in the life of alexander what the treaty of paris of eighteen fourteen left to us in eighteen fifteen there was no longer any question of the bourbons they had nothing to do with the predatory contracts of the second invasion those contracts were the result of the escape from elba in vienna the allies declared that they were only uniting against one man that they did not intend to impose any sort of master nor any kind of government upon france alexander even suggested to the congress another king than louis the eighteenth if the latter had not by coming to seat himself in the tuileries hastened to snatch his throne he would never have reigned the treaties of eighteen fifteen were abominable for the very reason that men refused to hearken to the voice of the legitimacy and it was in order to destroy those same treaties that i wanted to rebuild our power in spain the only moment at which we again find the spirit of the restoration is at the congress of aix-la-chapelle the allies had agreed to take from us our northern and eastern provinces Monsieur de richelieu intervened the czar touched by our misfortune and influenced by his leanings towards fairness handed to Monsieur le duc de richelieu the map of france on which the fatal line had been drawn i have with my own eyes seen that map of sticks in the hands of madame de montcalm the sister of the noble negotiator with france occupied as she was our fortified towns garrisoned by foreign troops could we have resisted once deprived of our military departments how long should we have groaned under conquest if we had had a sovereign of a new family a prince at second hand he would never have been respected among the allies some bowed before the illusion of a great house others thought that under a worn-out authority the kingdom would lose its energy and cease to be an object of anxiety cobbett himself agrees to this in his letter it is therefore a monstrous piece of ingratitude to refuse to see that if we are still old gaul we owe it to the blood which we have cursed most loudly that blood which since eight centuries had flowed in the very veins of france that blood which made her what she is saved her once more why persist in eternally denying the facts they took advantage of victory against us even as we had taken advantage of it against europe our soldiers had gone to russia they brought after them upon their footsteps the soldiers who had fled before them after action reaction that is the law that makes no difference to the glory of bonaparte an isolated glory which remains complete that makes no difference to our national glory all covered as it is with the dust of europe whose towers have been swept by our flags it was unnecessary in a moment of but too justifiable spite to go in search of any cause for our misfortunes other than the real cause so far from there being that cause had we not had the bourbons in our reverses 
we should have been portioned out appreciate now the calumnies of which the restoration has been made the object examine the archives of the foreign office and you shall be convinced of the independence of the language held to the powers under the reigns of louis the eighteenth and charles the tenth our sovereigns had the sentiment of the national dignity they were kings above all to the foreigner who never frankly wanted the re-establishment and who witnessed the resurrection of the elder monarchy with regret the diplomatic language of france at the time of which i am speaking is it must be said peculiar to the aristocracy the democracy full of broad and prolific virtues is nevertheless arrogant when it governs capable of incomparable munificence when there is a need for immense devotion it splits on the rock of details it is rarely elevated especially in prolonged misfortunes part of the hatred of the courts of england and austria for the legitimacy is due to the firmness of the bourbon cabinet instead of throwing down that legitimacy it would have been better policy to shore up its ruins sheltered inside it one would have erected the new edifice as one builds a ship that is to brave the deep under a covered dock hewn out of the rock in this way english liberty took its form in the breast of the norman law it was wrong to repudiate the monarchic phantom that centenarian of the middle ages like dandolo had fine eyes in his head and if it could not see out of them was an old man who could guide the young crusaders and who adorned with his white hair still vigorously printed his ineffaceable footsteps in the snow it is conceivable that in our prolonged fears we should be blinded by prejudice and vain and ridiculous shame but distant posterity will not fail to see that historically speaking the restoration was one of the happiest phases of our revolutionary cycle parties whose heat is not extinguished may cry we were free under the empire slaves under the monarchy of the charter but future generations going beyond this mock praise which would be ludicrous if it were not a sophism will say that the recall bourbons prevented the dismemberment of france that they laid the foundations of representative government among us that they brought prosperity to our finances discharged debts which they had not contracted and religiously paid the pension even of robespierre's sister lastly to make good our lost colonies they left us in africa one of the richest provinces of the roman empire three things remained standing to the credit of the restored legitimacy it entered cadiz at navarino it gave greece her independence it freed christianity by seizing algiers enterprises in which bonaparte russia charles v and europe had failed show me a power of a few days and a power so much disputed which has accomplished such things as these i believe with my hand on my heart that i have exaggerated nothing and set forth nothing but facts in what i have just said of the legitimacy it is certain that the bourbons neither would nor could have restored a castle monarchy or canton themselves in a tribe of nobles and priests it is certain that they were not brought back by the allies they were the accident not the cause of our disasters the cause is evidently due to napoleon but it is certain also that the return of the third dynasty unfortunately coincided with the success of the foreign arms the cossacks appeared in paris at the moment when louis the eighteenth returned there hence for france humiliated for private interests for all excited passions the restoration and the invasion are two identical things the bourbons have become the victims of a confusion of facts of a calumny changed like so many others into a truth lie alas 
it is difficult to escape those calamities produced by nature and the times fight them as we may right does not always carry victory with it the Scilly, a nation of ancient africa had taken up arms against the south wind a whirlwind arose and swallowed up those brave men the nasamonian says herodotus seized upon their abandoned country when speaking of the last calamity of the bourbons i am reminded of their commencement an indescribable omen of their grave made itself heard in their cradle henry the fourth no sooner saw himself master of paris than he was seized with a fatal presentiment the repeated attempts at assassination without alarming his courage had an influence on his natural gaiety in the procession of the holy ghost on the fifth of january he appeared clad in black wearing a plaster on his upper lip on the wound which jean chatel had given him when aiming at his heart he wore a gloomy visage madame de balagny asking him the reason how he said could i be pleased to see a people so ungrateful that while i have done and am still doing daily what i can for it and for whose safety i would sacrifice a thousand lives if god had given me so many it daily prepares new attempts on me for since i am here i here speak of naught else meantime the people cried long live the king sire said one of the court lords see how all your people rejoices to see you henry shaking his head what a people it is if my greatest enemy were here where i am and it saw him pass it would do for him as much as for me and would shout still louder a leaguer seeing the king huddled at the back of his carriage said there he is already at the cart's tail does it not seem to you as though that leaguer was speaking of louis says going from the temple to the scaffold on friday the fourteenth of may sixteen ten returning from the fuyon with bassompierre and the duc de guise the king said to them you do not know me now none of you and when you have lost me you will then know what i was worth and the difference between me and other men my god sire answered bassompierre will you never have done troubling us by telling us that you will soon die and then the marshal recounts to henry his glory his prosperity his good health which was prolonging his youth my friend said the king i must leave all that ravaillac was at the gate of the louvre bassompierre withdrew and did not see the king again except in his closet he was stretched out he says on his bed and monsieur de vic sitting on the same bed as he had laid his cross of the order on his mouth and reminded him of god monsieur le grand on arriving knelt down between the bed and the wall and held one of his hands which he kissed and i had flung myself at his feet which i held clasped weeping bitterly that is bassompierre's story pursued by these sad memories it seemed to me that in the long halls of Hradshin, I had seen the last Bourbons pass, sad and melancholy, like the first Bourbon in the gallery of the Louvre. I had come to kiss the feet of the royalty after its death. Whether it die for ever or be resuscitated, it will have my last oaths. The day after its final disappearance, the Republic will commence for me. In the case that the fates, who are to edit my memoirs, do not publish them forthwith, you will know when they appear, when you have read all, weighed all, how far i was mistaken in my regrets and in my conjectures respecting misfortune respecting that which i have served and will continue to serve at the cost of the repose of my last days i am writing my words true or deluded on my falling hours 
dry and light leaves which the breath of eternity will soon have blown away supposing the high dynasties to be nearing their limit omitting however the possibilities of the future and the lively hopes that spring incessantly at the bottom of men's hearts would it not be better that they should make an end worthy of their greatness and withdraw with the centuries into the night of the past to prolong one's days beyond a dazzling illustriousness is good for nothing the world tires of you and your fame it is angry with you for being still there alexander caesar napoleon have disappeared in accordance with the rules of fame to die beautiful one must die young do not make the children of spring say what is that the genius the person the dynasty that the world applauded for a hair of whose head a smile a glance one would have thrown away one's life how sad it is to see old louis quatorze find no one near him to talk to him of his century except the old duc de villeroy it was the last victory of the great conde to have met bossuet by his graveside the orator revived the mute waters of chantilly out of the old man's childhood he needed again the young man's adolescence he made brown again the hair on the forehead of the victor of roqua while bidding an undying farewell to his white hairs you who love glory look to your tomb lie down comfortably in it try to cut a good figure in it for you will remain there the road from prague to karlsbad stretches out through the tedious plains which the thirty years war stained with blood as i cross those battlefields at night i humble myself before the god of armies who bears the sky on his arm like a buckler one can see at some distance the wooded hillocks at whose foot the waters lie the wits among the doctors at karlsbad compare the road to Esculapius snake which came down the hill to drink of hygieia's cup on the top of the tower of the town the stadturm a tower mitred with a steeple watchmen blow the horn so soon as they perceive a traveller i was greeted by the joyous sound like a dying man and every one in the valley began to say with delight here's a gouty man here's an hypochondriac here's a myopic subject alas i was better than all that i was an incurable at seven o'clock on the morning of the thirty-first i was installed at the golden shield an inn kept for the benefit of count bolzona a very high-born ruined man in the same hotel were staying the comte and madame la comtesse de Cossé, who had gone before me and my fellow-countryman general de trogoff formerly governor of the chateau de saint cloud born long ago at landivisio within the rays of the moon at landonneau and a squatter figure though he be a captain of austrian grenadiers in prague during the revolution he had just been to see his banished lord the successor of st clodald a monk in his time at st cloud trogoff after his pilgrimage was returning to lower brittany he was taking with him an hungarian nightingale and a bohemian nightingale which prevented everybody in the hotel from sleeping so loudly did they complain of Thérèse's cruelty Trogoff used to cram them with grated bullock's heart, without being able to get the better of their sorrow, at Mestis Latte Loca Questibus Implet. Trogoff and I embraced like two Bretons. The general, short and square like a Celt of Cornouaille, has a certain shrewdness under an air of candour, and an amusing way of telling a story. Madame la Dauphine was inclined to like him, and as he knows German, she used to walk with him on hearing of my arrival from madame de Cossé, she sent to me to propose 
that I should go to see her at half-past nine or at twelve. I was with her at twelve. She occupied a house standing by itself at the end of the village on the right bank of the Teppel, the little river which rushes from the mountain and flows through Carlsbad from one end to the other. As I climbed the stairs to the princess's apartment, I felt perturbed. I was going almost for the first time to see that perfect model of human suffering, that Antigone of Christendom. I had not talked for ten minutes with Madame la Dauphine in my life. She had addressed scarcely two or three words to me during the rapid course of her prosperity. She had always shown herself at a loss in my presence. Though I had never written or spoken of her except in terms of profound admiration, Madame la Dauphine was necessarily bound to entertain towards me the prejudices of that antechamber gang in whose midst she lived. The royal family used to vegetate isolated in that citadel of stupidity and envy to which the young generations laid siege, without being able to force their way in. A man-servant opened the door to me. I saw Madame la Dauphine seated at the further end of a drawing-room, on a sofa between two windows, embroidering a piece of tapestry work. I entered feeling so agitated that I did not know whether I should be able to reach the princess. She raised her head, which she had kept lowered right against her work, as though herself to hide her emotion, and addressing me said, I am glad to see you, Monsieur de Chateaubriand. The king wrote to me that you were coming. You travelled at night. You must be tired. I respectfully handed her Madame la Duchesse de Berry's letters. She took them, laid them on the table beside her, and said, Sit down, sit down. Then she began her embroidery again, with a quick, mechanical, and convulsive movement. I did not speak. Madame la Dauphine kept silence. I could hear the pricking of the needle and the drawing of the wool. As the princess passed it smartly through the canvas, on which I saw some tears fall, the illustrious victim of misfortune wiped them from her eyes with the back of her hand, and without raising her head said, How is my sister? She is very unhappy, very unhappy. I am very sorry for her. I am very sorry for her. These brief and repeated phrases failed to open a conversation for which neither of the two interlocutors could find the necessary expressions. The redness of the Dauphine's eyes, caused by the habit of tears, gave her a beauty which made her look like the Spazimo virgin. Madame, I replied at last, Madame la Duchesse de Berry is very unhappy without a doubt. She has charged me to come to place her children under your protection during her captivity. It is a great relief to think that Henry V finds a second mother in your majesty. Pascal was right to connect the greatness and wretchedness of man. Who would have believed that Madame la Dauphine attached any value to those titles of queen, of majesty, which were so natural to her, and of which she had known the vanity? Well, the word majesty was nevertheless a magic word. It beamed upon the princess's forehead, from which, for a moment, it removed the clouds. They soon returned to place themselves there like a diadem. Oh, no, no, Monsieur de Chateaubriand, said the princess, looking at me and ceasing her work. I am not queen. You are, madame, you are, by the laws of the realm. Monseigneur le Dauphin was able to abdicate only because he was king. France looks upon you as her queen, and you will be the mother of Henry V. The Dauphiness discussed no longer. This little weakness, by making her a woman again, veiled the glamour of so many different greatnesses gave them a sort of charm and brought them into closer connection with the human condition. I read out my credentials in which Madame la Duchesse de Berry declared her marriage to me, ordered me to go to Prague, 
asked to be allowed to keep her title as a French princess, and placed her children in her sister's care. The princess resumed her embroidery. When I finished reading, she said to me, Madame la Duchesse de Berry does well to rely on me. That's quite right, Monsieur de Chateaubriand, quite right. I am very sorry for my sister-in-law, you must tell her so. This persistency on the part of Madame la Dauphine in saying that she was sorry for Madame la Duchesse de Berry, without going further, showed me how little sympathy there was at bottom between those two souls. It also seemed to me as though an involuntary impulse had stirred the saint's heart, a rivalry in misfortune. Nevertheless, the daughter of Marie Antoinette had nothing to fear in this struggle. The palm would have remained hers. If Madame, I resume, would like to read the letter which Madame la Duchesse de Berry sends her, and that which she addresses to her children, she will perhaps find some new explanations there. I hope that Madame will give me a letter to take back to Blay. The letters were written in invisible ink. I don't understand this at all, said the princess. What are we to do? I suggested the expedient of a chafing-dish with a few sticks of white wood. Madame pulled the bell, the rope of which hung down behind the sofa. A footman came, took the order, and set up the apparatus on the landing, at the door of the drawing-room. Madame rose, and we went to the chafing-dish. We put it on a little table, standing against the stair-rail. I took one of the two letters, and held it parallel to the flame. Madame la Dauphine watched me and smiled, because I did not succeed, she said. Give it to me, give it to me. Let me try my hand. She passed the letter over the flame. Madame la Duchesse de Berry's large round handwriting appeared. The same operation was performed for the second letter. I congratulated Madame on her success. It was a strange scene, the daughter of Louis says, deciphering with me, at the top of a staircase at Carlsbad, the mysterious characters which the captive of Blay was sending to the captive of the temple. We went back to our seats in the drawing-room. The Dauphiness read the letter which was addressed to her. Madame la Duchesse de Berry thanked her sister for the concern she had shown in her misfortune, recommended her children to her, and specially placed her son under the guardianship of his aunt's virtues. The letter to the children consisted of a few loving words. The Duchesse de Berry invited Henry to make himself worthy of France. Madame la Dauphine said to me, my sister does me justice. I have been very much concerned at her troubles. She must have suffered much, suffered much. You must tell her that I will look after Monsieur le Duc de Bordeaux. I am very fond of him. How did you find him? His health is good, is it not? He is strong, although a little nervous. I spent two hours in private conversation with Madame, an honour rarely granted. She seemed satisfied. Having never known anything about me except from hostile reports, she no doubt believed me to be a violent man, puffed up with my own merits. She was pleased with me for having a human aspect and being a good fellow. She said to me cordially, I am going out walking. I am keeping to the regimen of the waters. We shall dine at three. You must come, if you do not want to go to bed. I want to see you, so long as it does not tire you. I do not know to what I owed my success, but certainly the ice was broken, the prejudice wiped out. That glance which had been fixed in the temple on the eyes of Louis Seize and Marie Antoinette had rested kindly upon a poor servant. At the same time, though I had succeeded in putting the Dauphiness at her ease, I felt myself exceedingly constrained. The fear of passing a certain level took from me that faculty for everyday intercourse which I had with Charles X. 
whether it was that i did not possess the secret of drawing what was sublime from the soul of madame whether it was that my feeling of respect closed the road to the intercommunication of thought i felt a distressing sterility which came from within myself at three o'clock i was back at madame la dauphine's i there met madame la comtesse esterhazy and her daughter madame d'agou messieurs o'hegarty the younger and de trogoff who had the honour of dining with the princess countess esterhazy once a beautiful woman is still good-looking she had been intimate with monsieur le duc de blacas in rome they say that she meddles in politics and tells Monsieur le Prince de Metternich all that she hears. When, on leaving the temple, Madame was sent to Vienna, she met Countess Esterhazy, who became her companion. I noticed that she listened attentively to what I said. She had the simplicity, the next morning, to tell me that she had spent the night in writing. She was preparing to leave for Prague. A secret interview was arranged at a spot agreed upon with Monsieur de Blacas. From there she was going to Vienna old attachments made young again by espionage. What a business, and what pleasures! Mademoiselle Esterhazy is not pretty. She looks witty and mischievous. The Vicomtesse d'Agout, a devotee to-day, is an important person of the class which one finds in all princesses' closets. She has pushed on her family as much as she could by applying to everybody, especially to myself. I have had the satisfaction of placing her nephews, she had as many as the late arch-chancellor cambacerius the dinner was so bad and so scanty that i rose dying of hunger it was served in madame la dauphine's own drawing-room for she had no dining-room after the meal the table was cleared madame went back to sit on the sofa took up her work again and we formed a circle round trogoff told stories madame likes them she interests herself particularly in women the duchesse de guiche was mentioned her tresses do not suit her said the dauphiness to my great surprise from her sofa madame saw through the window what was happening outside she named the ladies and gentlemen walking came two little horses with two grooms dressed in the scotch fashion madame ceased working looked long and said it is madame i forget the name going into the mountains with her children Marie Therese, curious, knowing the habits of the neighbourhood, the princess of thrones and scaffolds descending from the heights of her life to the level of other women, interested me singularly. I watched her with a sort of philosophic tenderness. At five o'clock the Dauphiness went out driving. At seven I was back for the evening gathering. The same arrangement, Madame on the sofa, the guests of the dinner and five or six young and old water drinkers enlarged the circle. The Dauphiness made touching but visible efforts to be gracious. She addressed a word to everyone. She spoke to me several times, making a point of calling me by my name to make me known. But she became absent-minded again after each sentence. Her needle multiplied its movements, her face drew nearer to her embroidery. I saw the princess's profile and was struck by a sinister resemblance. Madame has begun to look like her father. When I saw her head lowered under the blade of sorrow, I thought that I saw Louis Cesar's head awaiting the fall of the blade. At half-past eight the evening ended. I went to bed, overcome by sleep and lassitude. On Friday the 31st of May I was up at five o'clock. At six I went to the Moulinbard. The men and women water-drinkers crowded round the spring, walked under the gallery of wooden pillars, or in the garden next to the gallery. Madame la Dauphine arrived, dressed in a shabby grey silk gown. 
She wore a threadbare shawl on her shoulders and an old hat on her head. She looked as though she had mended her clothes, as her mother did at the conciergerie. Monsieur Hegarty, her equerry, gave her his arm. She mixed with the crowd and handed her cup to the women who draw the water from the spring. No one paid any attention to Madame la Comtesse de Marne. Maria Theresa, her grandmother, in 1762, built the house known as the Moulinbard. She also presented Carlsbad with the bells which were to call her granddaughter to the foot of the cross. Madame, having entered the garden, I went up to her. She seemed surprised at this courtier-like flattery. I had seldom risen so early for royal personages except, perhaps, on the 13th of February, 1820, when I went to look for the Duc de Berry at the opera. The princess allowed me to take five or six turns round the garden by her side, talked kindly and told me that she would receive me at two o'clock and give me a letter. I left her out of discretion. I breakfasted hurriedly and spent the time remaining to me in visiting the valley. End of Book 4, Part 2